0: Snellius, no. Okay. Check one. Sibilance. Hey, this is Stomp. Just real briefly. Ty Gagney, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with Mike and I about your books. Where you'll find me, The Last Traverse, and your shorter essays, Emotional Rescue and Weakness in Numbers. It was a great what four hour deep dive just awesome ty was gracious enough to bring several signed copies of these books as well as specialized note cards with a a message on them and he also wants to donate a virtual book chat to a lucky listener as well so please listen to the end of this episode because the details are all in there about how these raffles are going to work The main purpose here is to donate money to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council. This is the nonprofit in New Hampshire that really supports volunteer search and rescue teams statewide. So again, take a listen and uh, let's donate to the Outdoor Council. Alrighty, enjoy the episode.
1: Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the live, free, or die state of New Hampshire. Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, occasionally including the counties of Belknap, I mean, Belknap, um, something like that, and Coos Coos, wait, or is it Coos County? Whatever. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump.
2: Okay, you ready? Episode 39 We are. Yeah, thirty-nine. Thirty-nine. So we've got part two of the Ty Gagney interview here. So Stump, where? So where? when did we start recording shows in March of of this year I thought it was April I think we released our first show in April but we had to like record in March and then remember the show sucks so we had to redo them and I think it started (laughs) in so it's not um, (laughs) too bad at the end of the day so we get through this year we've got probably 40 episodes that we're going to end on and that's a lot better than I thought yeah, that's a lot of material. And, uh, you know,
0: I, I was actually looking over all the episodes today for a potential idea. Um, and the progression's pretty neat. I think we're tightening up our game a little bit. I mean, we've had certainly plenty of practice.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been fun. And um, it's a lot better. I figured, honestly, I figured if we'd do five of these, it would suck and we'd get bored. And, Maybe we'd stop talking to each other, but I guess that hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so far so good. It's still a lot yeah, of fun. It is, but uh, I don't have <laughs> too many conversation starters other than I do want to make a promise to the audience. I think we've talked about this before, but I am going to get on the Slasher merchandise um, thing. And I've got some exploratory conversations about getting some t-shirts and some hats and some stickers and some patches put together. Um, so that's going to be, awesome. I think we're going to take a little bit of a break over the holiday season and then pick it back up in January. So I'll do a little bit of work on, on getting some merch and trying to get a storefront going so that people can buy stuff. And I think that what we'll do is we'll just, we'll, we'll basically try to Sell stuff at cost, or if we make any profit, it'll just go to um, donation for SAR.
0: Yeah, that's a good plan.
2: Unless you want to save the money, we can go to Hawaii. Hey, okay. I'm game. Just don't tell
0: anybody. <laughs> do some do some surfing. Hang 10. Exactly. Trade the boots for a waterlogged board. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about my first surfing experience? No, so have
2: you... Did you just like surf one time, or you do you consider yourself a surfer? I'm a surfer, man. What for sure? It's what? like, yeah, my my dad, he was the quintessential hippie
0: back in the '60s, and he got the idea in his head to buy some long boards when he was younger, and he would surf the hurricanes that would come around the region. So he'd be out there on like Revere Beach and Nahant Beach surfing these, you know, six to 10 foot waves on this giant longboard. So eventually I got the bug and that was sort of the first thing I uh, experimented with before uh, snowboarding and all that stuff. So yeah, man, now my, my daughter Evelyn's trying it. She she actually went to her Hawaii, maybe um, uh, it was during one of her breaks and she got to surf for the first time too. So she Pretty cool. You're such such a renaissance man. I would have never thought you're into surfing. Surfing is intense, man. There's um, nothing quite like the feeling of the water. That you know, when it finally grabs the tail of your board and just like you, you feel the power of the water when it pushes you for that first moment. Um, It's there's nothing like it. It's really intense. But um, yeah, long story short about the um, my my. I surfed over in the West Coast at Huntington Beach and they sold these like, uh, or they rented these waterlogged boards. They were just absolutely terrible. But
2: I can claim to have surfed over on the uh, the West Coast. <laughs> well, that's impressive. I've I, the only thing I really did. It's pretty neat. I, my cousin had a house in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, and believe it or not, in uh, those areas, like Narragansett and East Greenwich, they would get some decent waves in different areas. So we would like boogie board, and I would see the the people yeah. surfing and. I was around it a couple of summers when I was a kid, but I never got anything more than getting into boogie boarding. But I, I get, I understand what you're talking about. Like that once you, I sort of got to the point where I could catch a wave and and get that feeling. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's about it. I, I get, I was down in Florida a couple of years ago and I got bit by a creature. I don't know what it was, whether it was a crab or some fish or something like that. And I mean that was about the end of me. I'm like, I'm done with the ocean. I'll go up to my ankle, max, but I am not surfing.
0: It's a scary place. It really is. Have you seen that, um, that new series on Disney Plus with Will Smith? No. It's really neat. I think it's just called Earth. But the second episode, he goes into one of these submersibles and he goes down believe it or not, 3,300 feet. So that's the height of Mount Chikora. So it's really relatable in the yeah. inverse. Check it out. It's very cool because they, they, they find like all these bizarre creatures, but they actually find cliff walls,
2: and uh, they reach the bottom, and uh, it's really neat. I will check it out. I will check it out. Sounds like a, a marine search and rescue is going to happen. <laughs> All right. Well, the audience doesn't want to hear us talk about like Jacques Cousteau stuff, so they want to get to tie. But any um, sponsor or coffee stuff that you want to share with us, Stomp?
0: We have one donation from Joe G. Donated two coffees. Thank you very much, Joe. Much appreciated. And um, this week we are going to thank again our brewer. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. We don't have a brewer yet. Potentially in the future, but we have a sponsor, and it's at Reckless Brewing, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4,000 footers,
2: and less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. Yeah, Ooh, now you're you're you not gonna. So, are you gonna put in that new uh, audio drop on this episode, or are you just gonna keep it? F- I'm gonna it mix up. it up. Okay. I yeah, yeah. Unless you unless you
0: disagree. But I, I like to mix things up with these intros and outros and drops and things like that. Keep it
2: fresh. Yeah, well I got a big issue with that guy. I'm gonna talk to him. I got I got a problem.
0: <laughs> oh, he's getting on your case about your pronunciation, right?
2: How dare he how dare he mock me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh
2: boy. I listened to that and I was just <laughs> like, Oh, I can't pronounce anything. Matter of fact, I even said Belknap in the the last episode. I got that. Not only did I say Belknap, so it's (laughs) Belknap. I got the guy's name wrong. It's Jeremy (laughs) Belknap, and not Jeremiah. So I'm just Uh, horrible. So great. So I mean, I guess that's going to be a thing. So I just suck at pronunciation. But yeah. um, Hey, that's all all right. right. So let me do the show summary here. So tonight we're joined. Again, by um, Ty Gagne. He is here to um, do part two of a discussion that we had with him around um, you know, his writing, his short stories, an upcoming movie uh, based on his short story, Footprints in the Snow. So we cover a lot of ground. He gets to tell a lot of um, fascinating stories. In in particular tonight, we're focusing on the story of The Last Traverse, uh, which is a story of a search and rescue event that occurred on Franconia Ridge. And then we will also focus on the story of Pam Bales, who uh, is a um, search and rescue team member that was involved in a rescue on Mount Washington. So very excited to to listen to this next part. So uh, we will... Try to get through our final topic here before we get to the segments with Ty. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Very good. Very good. So beer talk, Stomp, what are you drinking? I actually went to the uh, the Heart of
0: Darkness or the the Belly of the Beast in downtown Plymouth. I had a Brave the Rotary down there, okay. uh, down by the gazebo. And I went to, what is it, Chase Market? So I bought some uh, Reckless Mount Eustace. It's their 6% brown ale. Absolutely delicious.
2: How about you? Anything? I got nothing. I got nothing. I was supposed to go to, so I was I, I went down to visit my daughter <laughs> at, in Worcester at her college this uh, this afternoon, and then the plan was to stop and get some uh, some beverages. But I just there was some some stuff that came up, so um, I couldn't get anything. So I'm just drinking water tonight. So I apologize to the beer. I'm proud of
0: you. I just want to mention quickly. Uh, there's a lot of uh, fundraising going on for. A little ski area that is in the vicinity of Reckless Brewing, and it's called Mount Eustis Ski Hill. And I guess they got hit really hard during the pandemic. So I think if you want to check it out, there's an article about it on the Caledonia Times, but I think you can go to the Reckless Brewing website to get more information. It's just a local, you know, small little rope toe, but it's a it's cool to see the community coming together to raise some funds to keep it going. So just wanted to mention that.
2: Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. So we have like, there's a bunch of fundraising stuff that we're, gonna, we're talking about. So we have the raffle with Ty We've got this fundraiser, and I think we're going to cover something else on the other side of the segment. So um, people better be breaking out their wallets and donating. Uh, My understanding is like hikers have like a lot of disposable income to buy stupid stuff like- um,
0: Oh, yeah. Inflation be damned.
2: 50 pairs of gloves and all that fun stuff. So just use that money to donate to uh, local New Hampshire uh, organizations. Right on. Very good. So any recent hike stomp?
0: No, nothing for me. Yeah, I've been sitting here in front of the computer. (laughs) <laughs> awesome. Well, I got I got one. Yeah, that's great.
2: It's good to see you. Was this a mental health day or what was going on? Yeah, yeah. My company does a, they do a wellness um, day every like three months or so. so oh, that's awesome. The, the deal is, yeah, so they give you a day off. Like that's not part of a holiday or anything. And then the, the focus is basically on doing something that is going to, you know, help with your you know, whatever you want to do. So for me, obviously, like me and a friend, my friend Tom that I talk about a lot, yeah. who, he works in the same company as I do. So we hike together. So we decided we were going to go hiking. The original plan was we were going to um, go up 19 Mile and go to Mount Height because neither one of us had been on that. Uh, for whatever reason, through all the four thousand footers, I just I skipped height. Oh, as matter of fact, it was that height that we did. Remember, we had to skip it because of the blizzard coming in.
0: Yeah, my wife would would back me up and say that's probably her favorite peak, if not mine, but mine as well. It's just absolutely awesome. So, did you make it?
2: Well, we didn't do it. So, and I hear that a lot about Mount height. So, we ended up do, calling an audible because my microwave broke. So, I had to get like the microwave repair guy on my wellness day. So, <laughs> I had to stay until about. Uh, 10 o'clock waiting for the repair guy. So we did an audible and we changed it up and we decided Tom has never gone to Monadnock, So I was like, Oh, let's go to Manadnock. I huh. was like, it'll give us, you it, know, it's a, it's a great place and it's a crime that you haven't been there. So we went up, <laughs> Right. we did our Friday, Friday afternoon. We got there around noontime and then we hiked up the Spellman trail, did a little side adventure to a secret spot that I like to go to and then went up to the, uh, the peak. And it was like, a, um, it was like a little bit of everything so you had like nice weather the sun was out it was cloudy there's like rock climbing and scrambling we had to put micro spikes on then we got up above tree line and it was we did a little bit of a bushwhack too to get off trail we got above tree line and we got like no visibility high winds cold weather um it was great good day so it's sort of like the
0: alpinist that uh, ty was talking about last episode have you seen that yet
2: I did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's really good. Really sad. I I finally finished it. Great, great stuff. And what impresses me the most is that they just can film that. Like somebody's parallel to this guy going up. That's amazing.
2: It is. And that, that climb that he did in Patagonia, where it was like, I forget what it's called, the something Eiger. It was so crazy because it took him like three, his first time out, it took him like three days. And then he got turned around by weather because he just didn't know the, the terrain and he was kind of taking it slow and he had to tent out and then eventually he peeled. Um, but then like he got another window weather and he did it in like one day. So it's like that once he had that local knowledge of the mountain, like it, it was like nothing. He was All like, right. Oh, this takes me no time whatsoever.
0: Sure. And just the fact that he approaches it without any recon ahead of time is mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah, cool. Exactly.
2: But I mean, it's just like the, he should, it, I think it's a good story for everyone to look at but I mean you're going to continually put yourself in these insanely risky situations like eventually your number's going to come up I think that's that's basically the lesson that I, and even though like even this guy Alex Arnold like he's amazing and all that but like eventually if he kept pushing it like something's going to happen like you can't continue to put yourself in a situation where you're like one slip away from dying right right so I mean he that guy can I'm not I'm not I'm not putting myself in that situation, but, um, anything else before we dump into the, uh, part two, a tie? I think that's what everybody wants to hear anyway.
0: Yeah. Let's dive in. It's going to be awesome.
1: It's time for slashers guest of the week. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, we
0: are back for episode 38? 39. Uh, 39, it's 39. 39. Okay, this is part two. We have our guest, Ty Gagne, in studio here at the Woodpecker Studio in the lovely state of New Hampshire, and we are going to continue our conversation. Last uh, episode, we left off talking about the Kate Matrasova story, and um, we are going to start discussion over the latest book that Ty released
3: last year, right? 2020. It's kind of a blur because <laughs> we can talk about that. I, yeah. I'm so bad with uh, dates going two to three years back right now, as, as I'm sure most of us are. But I yeah, bet. I can imagine. I think it was November, 2020. Well, everybody
0: received your first book really well and this one just sort of blew the roof off of the community, I think. Everybody was just giving high praise and uh, everybody was talking about it to me. And to be uh, honest in the confessional, I just didn't have a chance to read it until now, but I'm, I'm glad I did. I, heard, <laughs> I Well, my wife, I got the book from my wife and she plowed through it and she was just floored. And uh, yeah, I was really impressed. So, you know... Can you give us a, just a, like a, a thirty-two thousand foot s- summary of the story,
3: and then we can p- pick apart certain points sure. here and there. And the first thing I want to say is I just I want to thank both of you for the opportunity to participate in supporting the New Hampshire Outdoor Council um, with the books and and the book talk. I I really believe in that organization and and search mm. and rescue in New Hampshire, so I I'm grateful. So thanks again. You um, bet kind of high level overview. Again, it ties back to my traverse of the ridge because it was eight days later after my experience that um, that James Osborne and, and Fred Fredrickson attempted to do the same traverse in the opposite direction. Uh, they were overtaken by a storm. And one of the reasons this story has stayed with me since it happened is I was in the process of Really beating myself up over the decisions I had made on the ridge uh, the week before. I was going through a lot of self reflection, self criticism, uh, and their accident happened, and it that it, that hit me. Um, and uh, so they were overtaken by a storm. Uh, they attempted to self rescue the next day. They had not planned to stay at overnight, but they were they, they they stayed high up on the ridge. They didn't really have the gear they needed to do that. Uh, so by the time they they attempted their their bailout the next morning they were already dealing with significant hypothermia um, mm-hmm. and frostbite issues um you know, tragically, Fred was unable to um, to get off the ridge he 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 perished there not not far from the trail junction uh, near little haystack uh James uh, collapsed unconscious in the snow near haystack shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. And it launched a very large-scale search and recu- rescue operation that ultimately led to uh, James being located at night in really severe conditions, uh, and he was saved. Uh, and it's a it's a really remarkable story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Who found James? Was uh, it- uh, Mountain Rescue Service? Okay. Found him. And who? Who found uh, Fred? Mountain Rescue Service. So Both. there was a team, uh, there were hasty teams sent up uh, consisting of conservation officers who got there earlier in the day. And, you know, as they will tell you, one of their roles is to bust out trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had snowed heavily throughout that weekend. And they, it was arduous work for, for all of them um, on the various trails. And there were two conservation officers on Little Haystack. Uh, there was a team of five mountain rescue Service members that were deployed behind them that ultimately caught up with them near Shining Rock Junction. Uh, those, the members of MRS, continued up to treeline. Uh, they were given the green light to proceed in a line search, more or less, up to Little Haystack. Uh, they had every intention of turning around and, and descending, not attempting to go across the ridge. Yeah. Um, one of the rescuers saw a piece of reflective material out in the distance. Approached it. Uh, you know, reflected off of the beam from his headlamp mm. and um, located Fred. It was obvious to that rescuer and the others that convened there that he hadn't survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another rescuer, Jim Surrett, um, noted a, a frozen footprint out in the, out in the distance, uh, at the, really at the edge of the beam of his headlamp again picture it's complete darkness blowing snow uh really really cold and windy minus 60 wind chill yep plus yeah uh, and he makes a decision to break away from his team and follow it uh and he follows this set of tracks off the toward the backside of um little haystack east on the eastern slopes mm-hmm. and there he finds james half buried in a snow drift not expecting him to have survived um and, interesting yeah and th- uh, he was alive
0: do you think that snowdrift might have actually assisted with some heat retention or at least get out of the
3: wind yeah i, I it's really Possible. hard to it's really hard to know uh why james was had survived after yeah. being out in that long in the cold yeah.
0: So you, so you have two friends. Can you tell us about their experience levels and their uh,
3: exposure to these, quote unquote, full conditions? Yeah. Fred had an extensive amount of hiking experience in all four seasons. Uh, he had done the 100 highest in the Northeast, the 48,000 footers in all seasons, had spent time on Katahdin and Baxter State Park. Um, also out in the Adirondacks, did a lot of hiking there. Um, would had a really high level of physical fitness, would often exercise twice a day, once before work and once after. Um, James had done 37 of the 48 4,000 footers over the course of about a year and a half. He was part of this group of four hikers from Concord Coach where he worked that they would, on their days off, they would, some combination of the four or all four would go out and, and hike together. So he had, he had um, summited, again, 37 of the 48, 4,000 footers over the course of about a year and a half, and, but had yet to do a winter hike. And so the idea of this winter hike um, actually was born the day after my traverse of the ridge when James and Fred saw each other at a small social gathering. And Fred had just come off of doing the traverse solo that Sunday. Super Bowl, uh, right? Yeah, Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, and that, that plan evolved throughout the course of the week. Okay. So
0: their I, their trip was to go up Falling Waters and across. Now, as they're coming up trail, well, let's actually, let's go back to their gear. Was Jason skilled with like, say, snowshoes and crampons or
3: had he been experienced with that stuff? Well, James had, didn't, he was a skier, but he didn't have some of the equipment that you would Want to augment your trip uh, if you're on foot. So mm-hmm. he he the Friday night before the hike, uh, he went to an outdoor retailer uh, trying to to uh, purchase snowshoes and crampons. The snowshoes were sold out again. It's February. Yeah. A lot of that inventory's gone, and um, but was able to score the last pair of crampons. Had had never used um, either tool, uh, and this was going to be his first outing doing so. Interesting. We, we say that a lot here on the podcast is, you know, make sure you have the
0: gear, but know how to use it. Um, it obviously, there's a learning curve to crampons. And I believe you mentioned that at one point the crampon rips into his leg, um, which is unfortunate. Um, okay, so they have their gear they're They're aware of the weather that's coming in. So it's another uh, serious weather event that's
3: coming in when... Uh, It's forecasted for that afternoon uh, and in talking with James, you know, back then he, you know, he checked AccuWeather.com, Weather.com, did not check the Higher Summits forecast. Uh, We don't know if Fred checked the Higher Summits forecast or not, but what I can tell you is both knew there was going to be some kind of uh, winter weather event uh, that Sunday afternoon. Um, Fred had told somebody very close to him who had expressed some some concern about the weather forecast that, hey, we're going to be fine. We'll be down in about four or five hours before it hits.
0: Okay. Now, in the last episode, we talked about uh, the leader role and uh, groups. Was Fred the leader in this group? Um, or was there a shared leadership role in this? Or
3: Yeah, as, as, as James will readily tell you, um, who he was as a person back then is that he would default all decision-making and planning for these trips to whoever he was going with, and so uh, Fred did have more experience. James knew that, um, and I wouldn't say there was a power dynamic between them. It was just this two friends, one of whom with less experience, just defaulted to the expertise uh, between the two of them. Is it your understanding that they had
0: that uh, that trust or that psychological? bond or that, that um, uh, trust that we talked about last episode established where one person could speak up if they were uncomfortable or needed to turn back?
3: Yeah, I don't, um, I don't. Yeah, I talked to James a lot and I, I don't think he was hesitant to raise concerns. Uh, I don't think he felt that he could, couldn't be candid with, with Fred. Uh, They, again, they, they had a really good relationship. There was a chemistry there. And um, I think what it was is that, you know, James would, uh, there were a couple of times where he said, you know, the visibility seems to be bad. Are we going to be okay to, and, and Fred said, we're going to be fine. Did, did that with the weather event when James, um, in the days leading up to the hike, brought it up. I said, you know, we're going to be fine. And when James was standing on a little haystack with Fred and they were preparing to uh, start the traverse, he said, you know, how are we going to be able to see to get down the other side? Because the visibility was not good. Uh, and he said, we're, we're going to be okay. And, and James took that, that it was going to be okay. Okay, now, as they're ascending
0: falling waters and when they get to Haystack, they've already passed several people coming back down trail. A number of people that actually told
3: them to forget about it, correct? Uh, there was really only one direct conversation of um, one individual and some interesting things have happened um, since the books come out that I haven't really been able to share with people other than maybe in the small talks I'm doing uh, for groups and at libraries. But um, I was contact, there was a, there was a lone hiker that James recalls encountering when they were having lunch at Shining Rock, and I was never able to find out who that hiker was. And the hiker read the book um, and remembered the day. Interesting. He got in touch with me. Oh, wow. He lives out of state, and he said I was there, and I, I, have, I have photographs that I took as I was breaking tree line and as I was standing on Franconia Ridge that I now use in my, in my talks. But it was a you know it was a conversation stop. Hey, it's it's really socked in up there. Probably just best to to go up and come back down. That conversation didn't deter them. And then there was another. There was a group of three, who were the first people out on the trail, that I was never able and no one was able to identify, who also read the book, lived out of state. Wow, that's amazing. they got in touch with me. They actually traversed the ridge uh, that morning took photographs, I have them, they're time, date stamped. Um, but when they were descending Lafayette, they got disoriented um, by some snow drift and they ended up, instead of descending Old Bridal, which was their plan, they descended Greenleaf Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time they got down into Franconia Notch, they emerged, as you know, you can 93's right there, and they said it was the the roads were just completely shut down with traffic. And when you think about that, um, you know, that's taking place unbeknownst to them or anybody else, James and Fred are, are in it, uh, up, uh, up on that ridgeline and, and they're the only ones up there.
1: Hmm.
3: And, you know, I've had some people at you know, are you going to do a second edition of the book with that new information? And I, I'm not going to, I, I'm not, driven to do that i i feel like the the information that people have that information i just shared with you is is anecdotal and probably doesn't affect the story enough to to do a second edition and try to sell more books because that's just not what i'm i'm interested in doing it's um i'm able to share those those two pieces just in my conversations with people
2: yeah it's it's an interesting point about How we perceive other hikers, particularly on days when we're out there and the conditions are difficult. And I think back, Stomp, I don't even know if you remember this, but Ty, we have uh, Rebecca Sperry, who's a friend of ours. She, She joins us occasionally and stomp and i had done a hike up falling waters and we had turned around a little bit past um little haystack the conditions were just there's no visibility and i think we were more it was more about being pressed for time than it was the conditions overall but it was also a day where we were like yeah we're going to turn around we had come down and had run into rebecca and we didn't really give her any sort of insight i think from her perspective we were just coming over the ridge and we had done a traverse you know so she's thinking That, you know, we're coming down and oh, if these two had done it, then maybe the conditions are fine. I can go across. So she ended up going across the ridge on the assumption that we had we had actually come across, which we hadn't. We didn't. I don't know if we I don't think we told her. So she kind of laughed about it afterwards and was like, yeah, well, I saw you guys came down. So I figured it was safe to go across. So. You can't always yeah, assume, because other people. And again, I don't know if Fred and James even factored that into their decision. But it's an interesting point: is that we assume certain things when we see people, but you just don't know what direction they're coming. Yeah, from. and I,
3: you know, going to assumption and going back to my experience uh, the week before. You know, we tell ourselves stories to to validate why we're doing or not doing certain things. And I, for me, it was. Oh well, I just assume we're going to stop at tree line, and it, and the other person will will take care of the decision. And so I'm just going to sit here and try to try to keep up with them. And um, assumptions a powerful dynamic. And I, again, I think there's also I think some discomfort when you see people going up. Um, you might be descending or ascending, and you see people that in your in your opinion are probably not. Uh, properly prepared for it, but we don't have that conversation because it can be uncomfortable and we worry about what's the blowback from that. And and now I think about, is that even going to be more so now because we've all had lived the past two years of being uncomfortable with <laughs> interaction? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, And so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. But it happens a lot. I get that question and comment a lot.
2: Yeah. And I think the... And just so, Ty. So you know, um, because Stomp is is you know he should be ashamed of himself. But I did get the book right away and read it immediately, <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I appreciate
3: um, that. And <laughs>
2: such a nerd, yeah. yes, exactly. But the thing that the challenge I the struggle I have with this story is. You know, unlike I think, you know, Kate's situation where she walked so far across that line, I just think about the geography of where where they were and it just feels so tantalizingly close to get down below tree line and you know, that's the struggle there is that you know, my guess is that they kind of looked at the situation and said, Well, we can go a little farther and a little farther and then it was I think the You know, obviously the line was, was crossed in this situation, but it just, it's so tragic to me because I just look at it and I say like, oh, they were just so close to safety. And it's, that's the heartbreaking part of the story.
3: It it is, it's heartbreaking and it's, it's, it's that intersection of emotion and reason. Fred had made a rational decision to, we're going to go back the way we came. We're going to follow this ridge line. We're a half mile from tree line. Um, and he was executing the plan, and James had great difficulty participating in that. Um, felt he couldn't go any further. Was had never experienced full conditions or an onslaught of wind and loss of visibility like that before in his life. Um, and emotion, in some ways, won won that won the day there, um, because I think that's where that leadership dynamic of I'm going to bring you back across the ridge um, shifted to I'm standing here with my friend who's in great duress and I want to help him. Put put an end to that. Um, And he did what he thought was right. And I, I, again, I wanted to, to share that story in a way that didn't cause people to say well they should have gone back because there are all kinds of different reasons and complexities as to why they didn't and it can happen to any of us it may not be at 5,000 feet on a ridge it might be at work or somewhere else it, It's we're all susceptible to that especially mm-hmm. when there's a when there's a strong relationship as there was between James and Fred
0: yeah so it was a leadership reversal at that moment um before we get to where they end up, I mean, they turn, they they hit the wind and James makes the call essentially to find shelter. Fred finds a granite rock. Uh, but before that, they've been experiencing heat loss. Can you talk briefly about just evaporative, convective, conductive?
3: Yeah. So they were, uh, initially they had started out, you know, we talk about starting out a little cold mm-hmm. uh, when we start a hike because we know we're going to ramp up and we're going to exert ourselves. and really want to manage that perspiration or evaporation. That's one of the three different uh, types of dynamics that can get to us from a hypothermia standpoint. Um, the other ones can convective and conductive, but again, they started out, they started to overheat. So they stopped. Uh, they shed a couple of layers as, as you would hope someone would do thermal regulation. Um, you know, but James would say he, you know, he hiked, he was a slow hiker and he would, he would uh, perspire pretty heavily on on his hikes, uh, and that can be really dangerous uh, if if we don't if we don't manage it. So mm-hmm. by the time um, they got to Shining Rock Junction, uh, James started to feel really really cold, and he felt that that was the on that was the arrival of the weather front. And mm. in our conversations, what I talked to him about is that what it was happening is he was starting to cool off. It was that, you know, that convective, um, all of that perspiration that had built up is, is being pulled away from him by the colder air. And it wasn't nec- it wasn't the arrival of the front because that didn't come until later. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what he needed, there was a, a layer or two of clothing while they were stationary having lunch. And, um, again, trying to infuse those lessons into, into the book. Mm hmm. But by the time they were required to shelter in place, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but you know they were their clothes were already damp mm-hmm. from a day of being out and hiking when uh, they tried to shelter. Yeah. Now you, you this is part of your line of work, I guess, right? With heuristics. It well, it's definitely something I put a lot of emphasis on and, th- yeah. and think about a lot, and try to incorporate it into the work I do. So, what do you think?
0: I mean, there's these four bases that you talk about in the book. Um, how would you apply these four concepts to this moment at, at Haystack and their decisions between, you know, Haystack to Lincoln and then back and then all of a sudden ending up in this granite bivouac?
3: Yeah. I, well, the first one that comes to mind is that expert halo dynamic where, you know, when we're part of a pair or a group and we perceive that there's somebody there that has more experience or expertise or tenure or authority that we will we will defer decision-making, uh, or we will not speak up because we're, we're really concerned about being criticized within the group, marginalized, isolated within the team, uh, mm-hmm. or removed from it altogether. And again, I will go back to, I, I just, there wasn't that power dynamic between James and Fred, but again, there was that default of decision-making and planning that, um, that landed on Fred's shoulders.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting. So I talked about like my partnership with my my friend, Tom, where, you know, we make decisions together and we're always kind of talking through things, but I also hike with my daughter who is now 19 and throughout the last five or six years, like it's not even a question, you know, I'm making the navigation decisions. Like I even, I didn't even think she knew how to read a map up until probably about a year, year and a half ago. And one of the takeaways from the book was I had, I had, after I'd read it I had said specifically I had called out that dynamic that like, you know, I really need to get my daughter to be confident in knowing how to how to manage navigation and decision making on her own. And now she's progressed well enough where she did her first solo hike of a four thousand footer. But it was a big takeaway is that even even if you're more comfortable letting people make the decision, I think you should get out of your comfort zone and try to get to the point where you can navigate on your own and and have those skills. And I get it. It's easier to just say like, okay, I'm going to let X, Y, and Z run the show and I'm just along for the ride. But from a safety perspective, I guess, I guess with winter hiking, it doesn't work as well because your, your margin for error is just not, not Mm -hmm. as high.
3: Yeah. And I I think there's some other ones that are important to bring up, Um, you know, the planning fallacy where we we will underestimate the amount of time it it will actually take to complete the task or the objective or the itinerary. We can overestimate our ability to accomplish it. And if we are with other people, we can overestimate their ability as well. Along with that, so if you think about a home project that you you had, I'd I'd just ask you, did it, was it finished on time and on budget? Probably not. Um, and so that's just an example, and along with that is the we anchor to that plan. So every decision we set a plan, and every decision that we make is in support of the plan, regardless of whether the plan is starting to come apart at the seams. Uh, we hold to it, and where I think this is important is, um, you know, Fred had done the traverse the week before and had moved really quickly. He was by himself high physical what high level of physical fitness, very familiar with the terrain. He moved quickly and fluidly across that ridgeline. And so why we will never know uh exactly what he was thinking that day. You know, we do know he told of someone close to him it was going to be about 4 or 5 hours. Well, we know that that 9-mile loop can take 7, 8 or more in favorable conditions. And so Again, we don't know, but the thing I ask people to think about is, is this is Fred factoring in the fact that now a week later he's with somebody else and that person moves at a pace much slower than what Fred does? Uh, again, we won't know. I would just ask the listeners, apply that to your own situations and your own outings. And then the last one is acceptance heuristic and this is, again, when we're part of a group and we want to be accepted into the group. We want to be respected, liked. Uh, and again, James and Fred already had a really strong relationship. What I will tell you is that is that is clearly where I fell eight days before them. I wanted the people I was with uh, to feel that I had the ability and the experience to be there, that I had enough uh, experience to be there, um that I was capable, I wanted them to like me, and that fueled a lot of the decisions that I did or did not make that day and that again that's human nature i'm not I'm very comfortable talking about it and owning it because I don't think I'm the only one that experienced it or and in some ways probably I still do in certain circumstances.
0: Mm. And just for the listeners, we discuss uh, this event that you did the week before uh, in the prior episode. So uh, it's called, the essay is called Weakness in Numbers and uh, Ty goes into a whole, uh, his own challenge up on the ridge. So,
2: Ty, what about the, and again, it's been a little while since I've read it, but uh, the gear situation, uh, you know, and there's always this discussion around like, are you going light and fast or are you going to go heavy and safe? and I don't know if it's always as simple as that trade-off, but my recollection is that uh, from a, a, a sleeping pad and a sleeping bag situation, I can't remember, did they have one bag with them and one
3: pad or what What was the, the gear situation? I, I can't they, recall. They didn't have either. Uh, James actually, when he was getting his gear together that morning, went into his gear closet, um, he got, he retrieved his backpack and he thought, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what that will weigh. And he stuffed his sleeping bag into his backpack and he put it on and he's like, Nope, (laughs) not, not doing it. And he left it and he's very open about that. So I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not talking out of school. It's in the book. Um, but they didn't, they didn't have anything in terms of a sleeping pad or foam pad to separate them from the granite they were lying on. That goes to, again, to conduction and, um, and they, you know, they didn't have sleeping bags and the, and the clothing that they were wearing, again, was damp. And the clothing that was in their backpack, the, the longer they were in that that sheltered area they were in and and there's the evaporation with the just as they exhale, uh, that everything in the backpacks got damp as well and, and became unwearable in addition to their food and their fluids freezing.
2: Yeah, yeah, that is is true. And I always think in terms of uh, people ask me this question occasionally around like, you know, should I bring a sleeping bag or not? And I always think in terms of the fact that you probably need to buy yourself if things go really sideways. And I always put myself in the scenario like, okay, I'm out there solo and I broke my ankle and the weather is not brutal, but it's you know, five degrees out and, and visibility. Like my thought is that, okay, if I have my sleeping bag, if I have a zero degree bag with me and I have my, my closed cell sleeping pad, then that buys me probably eight to 10 hours. And, you know, the same up on the ridge, if the, the conditions are really bad and you can get under something, if you can buy yourself eight to 10 hours at minimum, you know, you, that's the decision that you have to factor in. And, if the weather is going to be somewhat sketchy, you really got to make that hard decision to say like, okay, do I stay light so that I can get across super fast? Or do I bring that sleeping bag with the recognition that it's going to slow me down? But I bought myself that eight hours if I need it for a rescue. And it's a tough call and I've done it both ways. And I don't have a good answer for everybody, but that's basically what it comes down to.
3: It's to your point. It's gray. Uh, There's a lot of gray in that. And Again, I talk to a lot of groups. I feel like I keep saying that. But um, people are critical of the light and fast approach or can be critical of it. And that there's only one way to go and that's heavy and slow. And how I try to approach this with folks is to say, okay, light and fast, you're carrying a minimal amount of gear because you want to travel um, quickly, right? Speed equals safety. So the upside to that is that the faster I'm moving through unpredictable terrain, the less time I'm spending there. You could make the argument that, therefore, I am less exposed to sudden changes or, um, or trouble. The downside to light and fast is, if I get into trouble, I have very little with which I can rely on until I can either bail or be rescued. The upside to heavy and slow is I have a lot of extra gear because I'm either planning to stay out or I'm not. And if I get into trouble, I've got stuff, right? I've got gear. The downside to heavy and slow is the more gear I have, the slower I'm moving. The slower I'm moving across unpredictable terrain, you can make the argument the more exposed I am to unpredictability, sudden changes, and trouble. So it's, it's not so clear cut. And I think, you know, I'd still, I suspect some listeners would still say, well, heavy and slow is still the way to go. Again, these are individual decisions. You just talk through the struggle that you have with them. Um, I've gone solo before. One of my favorite winter solos is right. We're in the shadow of it today. And that's Welch and Dickey. It's not high, but it was amazing. And I was the only one out. Um, And I I felt that I had prepared enough, even though I'm at under you know, less under four thousand feet or so, um, that I had the gear to get through. But it's not again, I think it's it's a decision that a lot of um uh, hikers contend with.
2: Yeah, and I typically my decision matrix, I guess, if anybody cares, is I sort of look at the distance I'm going, you know, am I going above four thousand feet? Am I gonna spend a significant amount of time above tree line? And then the weather conditions, and that typically will inform my decisions. And if I know I'm going to be above tree line for a significant amount of time, I will typically err on the side of bringing the sleeping bag. And I always have a sit pad with me that, that can double as insulation against the ground. So that, that doesn't matter if I'm hiking two miles or 10 miles, I'm, I'm bringing that. But the sleeping bag decision really comes down to the weather conditions and you know, how high up I'm going. But there's also a group dynamic. And I've had many situations where, you know, there's three or four of us going somewhere and we look at it and we say, okay, I'm going to bring the sleeping bag just in case one of us gets in trouble. Somebody else bring uh, the camp stove and we'll, we'll split those up. So it's not always a you know, every individual needs to go heavy. You can split those up if you if you really need to and have a, sort of a, a middle ground, I guess, if you're thinking it through.
3: Yeah, I, Mountain Rescue Service, um, again, high, high expertise and experience. Their packs are roughly coming at around 30 pounds, uh, but they accomplish that uh, because they, okay, one person's going to bring a bivy, person's going to bring a sleeping bag. We have a shovel, we can dig a snow cave. Somebody has the stove. They, you know, they that's they think through those things, and uh, that allows them to move the way they do over the terrain. You know, Jim Nealand, who I mentioned in episode thirty-eight, yep, um, who's the team leader of fishing game. He, he does a really good job with this. When a when a hiker calls and, and is in trouble, and he gets linked up with them, and they ask how long it's going to take. Before they're rescued, he'll say, "Okay, I want you to think about how long it took you to get to where you are right now. It's going to take us at least that long, and we're we may be carrying a litter. We're going to have to wait for some people to arrive, and they have to leave what they're doing uh, because a lot of them are volunteers and they're working or they're doing different things. They have to get their gear together. We have to get them to the trailheads, um, and we have to deploy them. So." It kind of just gives you a sense of the duration that these things can take, and I go another step with that, and I ask people to think about, all right, the next time you're on a hike and you believe you are the furthest point away from your car, ask yourself, just do a quick inventory, do I have the gear in my pack that if I went down right in the spot and I could not go any further, do I have the the requisite gear that's going to be needed for me to sustain warmth um, and hydration and, um, you know, self-preservation until Stomp and his team members can get to me. Self-reliance. Yes. Much, yeah. much better than I did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, so Ty, there was a, you know, part of this story is around the, you know, the, the experience of the search and rescue members, but in particular, um, you know, the aerial response Black Hawk rescue um, and the, the challenges that, that happen when you can't get to uh, a rescue because of weather conditions. Um, and I think a lot of times people just assume that like helicopters can fly in any conditions and pick people off mountains, but that's just not the case. Can you talk through a little bit about? Um, sort of the 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 ear response when it comes to search and rescue.
3: Yeah, I'll talk about this particular case, and I, I know stomp works with New Hampshire Army National Guard just in his capacity as a as a rescuer. Um you know, this was a crew of four, four. It was originally five during the daytime portion of the search. Uh, they there's a fishing game liaison, a conservation officer that that tends that rides uh, oftentimes in the um, in the rear cabin. But they had returned back to base that night. They were called off because um, they just weren't able to get low enough um, to the ridgeline because of the mountain turbulence and the, and the poor visibility in the wind. But when they were called back to the scene, it was a crew of four. Um, and I talk a lot about that, that crew cabin dynamic. There's a, there's a lot of rank uh, and tenure within the military, um, and military aviation is dangerous. And a lot of difficult lessons have been learned over time and they've been able to translate those lessons into creating a cabin environment where regardless of your rank um, or tenure, if you are uncomfortable with something that's happening, that mission is, is called off or adapted. And it's the same holds true for the ground teams that if any member of the team at any time is uncomfortable, there's either they'll buddy them up and turn around or the team will turn or they'll modify the plan without criticism or judgment. In this case, it was a nighttime rescue, uh, full conditions, really bad visibility, a lot of cloud cover, frozen fog blowing over the summit as they were trying to make their approach to where the team was with James. Uh, And they almost headed back because it just wasn't, they they weren't able to find a, a landing spot. But just as that decision process was beginning, there was a parting of the clouds in the frozen fog where just enough for a member of that crew to see a spot. Um, and they called tally and they started their descent and it's the first time and the only time in our state's history where, um, a black Hawk helicopter has landed on a summit in the white mountains at night in full conditions. It, It hadn't happened before. It hasn't happened since, um, and again, I think that's just, we can be really proud of the expertise and the commitment and the service, I think, that exists within the state with all first responders and 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 highlighting that of the volunteer teams and and the teams that go out into the back country to help others.
0: Mm. And again, making note that your National Guard is a volunteer team.
3: Yeah. Uh, and I had the, it was just, I had the honor of, um, as part of the research, the, the crew chief, Matt Stower, had since been um, stationed at another base, but at, at the Eastern Army Aviation Training Site in Pennsylvania, I was invited to go there um, and spend two hours in a Black Hawk simulator with um, a, an instructor pilot. And Matt uh, was in in there as well, and they replicated the conditions. and I'm not going to say they were anywhere near what that crew of four dealt with that night, but they basically replicated conditions and narrated me through the from the mission from start to stop and Hmm. i'm so appreciative of that because i i really think it helped me paint the picture in the book of what just a little taste of what that crew did that night in addition to the ground teams
0: that's amazing i didn't know that detail uh that's amazing because um there's so many missions where they just can't get anywhere near these people. Yeah. Last year, do you remember the trail runners yep. that, that went off near Greenleaf into the drainage? That ceiling um, raised up just enough for them to come in. And the second they plucked those guys off of the drainage, it came back down yeah. within, within 20 minutes. So it's pretty precarious. And uh, sometimes you think Providence, like, wow, that's a miracle. Any other questions on that, Mike, about the Blackhawk team?
3: That was one of my questions about no. the weather and whether they had concerns. So, Yeah, and there was constant communication. A call and response is, is what they call it, that one member of the crew, we're doing this. It gets repeated back so that everyone knows what's going on. If a tool drops in the back cabin, it's, hey, dropped this so that the pilot knows it's not a malfunction of the system. And mm. it's just, uh, it's very transparent. Yeah. So we have
0: MRS and AFSAR going up Falling Waters, Old Bridal Path. You have Pemi going up Greenleaf or Skookumchuck Trail, actually, yep, right? Yep. Uh, you have all this going on. And meanwhile, you have these two individuals huddled in uh, a little granite bivy. And um,
3: Fred becomes protector, right? Essentially, yeah. I Thank you for bringing that up. You bet. Um, when Fred was able to find shelter for them and he went back up onto the ridge line and... Um, and led James down to where it was. I think it's something that a reader could kind of breeze past, but I really think there's something significant about this, that they had to get on their knees and they had to lay down on their backs and, and shimmy into this, this shelter they were when there's only about six inches of uh, space above between them and the, the wall of granite over their faces. Um, but Fred took the outside, and mm-hmm. I... I think there's a reason for that, and I, I don't like to speculate a lot, but I think he was taking the role of protector. I think a lot of people who were closely in, involved in this and knew Fred and knew James, and James themselves would say that Fred took that role of really putting himself on the outside of that shelter at the edge of the weather and, and really took the brunt of the weather over the course of the you know the 12-plus hours they were in there. hmm
2: yeah and like you said it's tough to speculate but i think given the dynamics that are known of the the partnership it it seems to be the most plausible explanation for that
0: and just for the listeners i mean you're talking minus 60 wind chills and and reading the book i'm amazed that the next day it got even worse and when the sun came up it was like minus 64 it just kept on dropping and dropping um Incredible! How is uh, Mr. Osborne doing
3: these days? Uh, I talked to him today, as a okay. mat just before I got here. Um, we had a text ex- talking. We had a text exchange. Um, he's doing really, really well. He's uh, really excited about ski season. He uh, he volunteers for the adaptive ski program at Mount Sunapee, where awesome. they taught him to get back on skis <laughs> after the accident, and once he received his prosthetic. Um, He does a lot of cycling. It does a lot of charity events for cycling for adaptive athletes. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just, uh, this is, you know, this is one of those things that is just really meaningful about this process is to be able to spend time with James and people like James. Um, And I'm learning as I'm learning as much as I'm trying to extend knowledge just to the, the reader, seeing the rehab and the recovery, yeah. and uh, I mean, I got—he gave me full access to his medical records, and there's a lot that isn't in the book because, you know, there you have to wrap that up somewhere. But there's just so much that he endured uh, in his recovery uh, that you know I just have I have so much respect for him, and I and I and we can't forget um you know fred's family the two sons uh he was very close with his ex-wife um mm. and they 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 have to contend with his loss every day yeah
2: yeah and I, I think as i was reading that book i i felt like you know fred could it resonated with me he just had a lot of personality traits that i feel like are very similar to me you know i I'm probably less driven now around hiking, but like going out there and doing solo stuff and then being so excited around the idea that, all right, I'm going to take my friend who may already have a little bit of hiking knowledge, but I'm going to introduce him to winter hiking. Like I could totally see how excited that Fred might have been about that scenario and making sure that he wanted to give him an amazing experience. Did, yeah, and,
3: it, it, it was uh, all yeah for the right reasons and with the best of intentions, and it got away from them. And I think... Just to add to something you just said, I think if we look at Fred and James uh, and Kate, and we're going to talk about Pam Bales and and John, um, who she helped, I think there's a little bit of them in each of us, right? I mean, there's that drive, there's that desire to experience new things, there's that compassion to help people. Um, we all have friends and loved ones that we would do anything for. Um, And I think you see that and that desire to always get better. I think you see that in each and every one of these folks that are in these stories. And, and again, and I don't want to discount, we see it in the rescuers too. And that, that draw to service and selflessness
2: Certainly, certainly. So, I think that's a good segue into um, Pam Bill's story and the, the the short essay that you wrote, uh, "Footprints in the Snow." Um, it's being, it's already, I guess, it's in the can at this point. Like it, it was. They used this short story as the basis for a new movie that's coming out called "The Infinite Storm." Um, do you want to give just a, a short summary of uh, the story? And I actually have one point that I'll, I'll cover as well around how I think Pam's situation t- ties to what we were talking about with, with James and Fred around, you know, the fast and light versus heavy and safe. But if, if you want to just sort of kick it off and give an overview, that would be great. Sure.
3: And it may not be brief because I just I want to provide the listeners with the, the, the true context behind all of this. Um, I met Pam Bales uh, while I was researching where you'll find me. I was um, referred to her by a a conservation officer from Fish and Game because I was trying to do some background on the Northern Traverse. And this, this conservation officer said, you need to talk to Pam Bales, who is a very highly respected member of the search and rescue community and had also done the traverse in this consecutive streak um more times than i can count um and so i i met with her at at mad river coffee which i we just talked about in the prior episode Mm. but um and we were i was interviewing her on background and we were talking about the terrain and the nuances and how the weather interacts in certain spots and where the snow tends to drift and what that can be like and i said well you know you've spent so much time up there over so many years do you how many like anecdotes from things you've experienced. And there's a long list and, and she was humble and brief to talk about them, but mentioned this encounter that she had with a hiker who was in distress. um, And ultimately walked him down the mountain and kind of, again, with her humility breezed back beyond it. But I, I heard something in those few sentences that she shared And I went back, I said, can we spend some more time on that? And ultimately, she shares the story about how she was going out for a hike, wanted to do the the loop uh, to go up Jewel Trail, um, Summit Mount Washington, um, and then descend down Ammo. She's really itching to get out, very spiritual connection with the mountains, a lot of experience, and gets up onto the ridgeline, notes a set of sneaker prints in the snow, uh, thinks that's not right the weather's deteriorating it's already ramping up. Pam's in the process of bailing out she's going to bail across west side on the lower flank of washington uh and and comes to the I talk about these intersections of emotion and reason and she comes to this intersection of where the footprints deviate off of Mount clay uh, heading north toward great Gulf and she starts signaling and starts wrestling with that decision do i Continue my bailout or do I follow them? Something just doesn't seem right. Follows the footprints, uh, finds this hiker who's in probably early stages to mild to moderate hypothermia. Had packed for heavy and slow as she always does. Had the gear that was needed not only to take care of herself but somebody else, which is this rule within Pemi Valley Search and Rescue that uh, has been instilled in the members for a long time. Gets him rewarmed through a series of uh, actions that I describe in the essay. Walks him over the course of several hours down the mountain. Get to gets to the parking lot at Ammo Trailhead. He leaves uh, after a short time. She doesn't. She's trying to process what just happened because it was a pretty quick departure. And about a week later, uh, the president of Pemi, Alan Clark, gets a letter in the mail, handwritten. Um and she had had nicknamed him John on the way down the mountain, but gets this handwritten letter from a person calling himself John describing his encounter with Pam Bales. There's a small cash donation to the team in the envelope. Uh, He knew where to send it because he had seen the patch on her backpack for the team and the bumper sticker on her car uh, and shared that he was up there that day to take his own life and that she disrupted that um, that she saved him that day and that he was in the process of seeking help uh, and wanted to extend his thanks uh, and, and yet remain anonymous as you, as you would expect and respect. So I was completely drawn to the story. I went through a research process with that. I'm in the midst of writing Where You'll Find Me. I stop writing Where You'll Find Me <laughs> and I start writing this story. And with the thoughts of maybe I'll incorporate it into the book, but how and had a really good conversation with the editor and said, look, that's an incredible story. Put it aside, go back, finish the book and consider maybe that becomes an essay at some point. And I can remember sitting, um, I've never talked about this with anybody before, so I I really appreciate the question. Um, But it's sitting on the couch and, next to my wife, she's kind of watching something on TV and I'm just on the laptop and I'm just got the weather data. I've got my interview with Pam, um, some other, you know, other information from that day. And I'm just cranking on this piece. Hmm. And I, and I read it back to, I read it to my wife. Like I can't remember a time where I wrote something that just came to me in, in, the way that that story did and resonated with me and the way that it did. And, you know, she's like, wow, that's, you've got something there. And um, so the book was finished. I sent the essay to um, Appalachia Journal. It originally ran in print in Appalachia through the AMC as emotional. I titled it Emotional Rescue for all the reasons I just talked. It was as much an emotional rescue of John as it was uh, a physical rescue. Um and so it published it printed um I don't think it you know it was read by the subscribers of Appalachia. But I in the meantime after it had come out and several months had passed I was writing a, a, just a small freelance column for the Union Leader newspaper in New Hampshire on the climbing scene in New Hampshire hadn't really gotten it off the ground had written a couple of pieces and it was just before the holidays. I can't remember the year, uh, maybe 19 or 18. And I approached the editor. I said, hey, I've got this essay about this really remarkable story that took place in the White Mountains back in October of 2010. It's 5,000 words. Can I submit it as a potential co- for the column? And he said, look, I'll be right up front with you. We're, yeah, we'll take a look at it. If we run it, we're going to condense this thing down because we have a word count restriction well they got in touch with me you know i think a few days later and said you know what we're going to run the whole thing and we're going to run it around the holidays because we think the mental health message is really important Uh, because i did put a lot of focus on mental health particularly toward the end in my closing paragraphs and um they ran it they, put, they posted it to their Facebook page. They ran the whole thing, and that's pretty unbelievable for a newspaper to, to commit to that many words. And apparently it went viral. It became the most widely read story in the history of the union leader, particularly in the digital age. And apparently, as it circulated around, it made its way to uh, a screenwriter in California who was a mountain guide In this area previously uh, and was very familiar with the area and he got I don't know how I think he got in touch with the paper got in touch with me said we want to do I want to do a screen play of this Um, you know they sought the rights to the story I said look I'm not doing anything unless Pam um, is in agreement with this very consistent with the principles I use with writing about accidents and families and loved ones. Um, And she, over a period of time, I think we both came to this place where we saw great value in sharing that story more for the mental health message than anything and really made it clear to uh, the screenwriter that that's what we wanted to come out of this. Um, The screenwriter went, wrote a screenplay, went out and pitched it, um and, uh, it was picked up. Um, wow! So it's done, huh? Production wise, very exciting. Yeah, I I was able to. I've been on the periphery of this, yeah. um, because it's it's Pam's story and it's John's story. I just was the messenger. Yeah. Um, and I firmly plant myself in that position of messenger. So, mm-hmm. um, I've seen. Uh, I and I think Pam has. I know Pam has seen it. It's. Um, I've seen the pre-production version. Uh, but I I know it's going through a lot of the editing and what you would expect that process to look like, and uh, I and I I believe it's it's going to debut next month out there. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> crazy, right? It's Interesting. I, I, I I've I've struggled with this uh, a, a lot, and it's I again I'll go back to my wife. We've had a lot of conversations about it. I just um, never would have expected it. And it's not some, an outcome I would have ever sought. I don't have an agent. I don't market. I don't promote. And it's, um, but I'm really glad for Pam. I'm glad for the PEMI team. And I'm really glad for John and those like John um, who are dealing with mental health issues that uh, that story is going to be shared in a, in a much larger way.
0: Timely because it the varied. number the number of these cases is exploding over the last yeah 20 months or so yep timely
2: yeah and i yeah. I, I remember when i first read it and i did i did what thousands of people have done is I, I shared it on my social media and i think that a lot of people that weren't involved in the hiking world had commented to to me and it said wow this is really an amazing story um, and I know I have like a matter of fact, it came up as a reminder and I, I reposted it again, uh, probably the last in you know, the last couple of months. And I still get people commenting on it, but it's just really an amazing short story that brings you into the moment. And, you know, it gives it really tells a story of hope is that, you know, no matter how far along or how how bad things get, you know, you can always. You know, Pam in some ways is sort of a symbol of, you know, ch- making another choice, and even sometimes, if you, you know, feel like you've gone past that point or no return, you know, Pam sort of symbolizes the fact that it's never too
3: late. Yeah, and, and that
2: you can't you can turn things around.
3: It's really well said. I I got questions after it came out, like, "Hey, did you try to find John?" And I didn't. Um, I didn't because, and I tried to like make this point toward the end of the essay that I think in some ways I'm him, you could be him, Mm -hmm. um, somebody you love very much could be him, that we're all, again, we're all susceptible to mental health crisis. I get it, um... And I I really that's I want I wanted to drive that point home as much as I wanted to cover the remarkable actions that Pam took up on that ridgeline in really bad weather, in really difficult conditions to get him down off that mountain. Hmm. And I also think. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I just said bravo. Yeah, you're right. I mean, as a
0: search and rescue Individual, she nailed it. You know yeah. just her approach immediately rewarming him and um, being that strong voice to get him, get him down. Incredible.
2: Yeah, and there's there's two things that I sort of resonate with me with the story. One is that decision point where she decides, instead of cutting over to west side, she says, "I'm going to follow these footsteps." I don't know how many of us have it in us to, and I think Pam was uniquely situated, being you know exposed to search and rescue. I think that based on the little that I know about her from reading this short essay, to me, it just seems like th- there would have been no other choice for her. I don't know if I can say the same for all of us, but, you know, making that decision to say, I'm going to track this down and see where it goes, you know, is is something that, you know, I think we all need to consider when we're out there is if something doesn't feel right, like track it down if you can, and it's within your ability. And then the other goes back to what we talked about around fast and slow and heavy or f- fat, you know, light and fast versus heavy and slow. The epiphany I had when I read this story was around the fact that, you know, it's not just about our own safety, but even though we're carrying heavy things sometimes in these winter hikes, that what we have in our pack may apply to rescuing somebody that needs help that isn't as prepared or or for whatever reason doesn't have the same gear. So it just is sort of one more checkbox i think on the side of
3: carrying more versus going fast yeah and i think you know pam could have continued walking straight for pam right and i think Mm. we know that's the path of least resistance we we keep walking straight every day with things we see and our guts telling us to intervene or to support and we don't for various reasons but And I, just as I said, we are all susceptible to walking on that ridgeline in a storm, personal storm. We can all be more like Pam. Um, And especially now, to your point, Stomp, now more than ever, I think we can, and I, you know, I hope, I hope with the film coming out, um, you never know how people are going to respond to it. Um, I hope it does inspire people to really think about that and how particularly with the time that we're in, um, we we can just be more, we can be more like rescuers because there's a lot of rescuing that is needed right now, whether it's in the mountains or somebody's living room or wherever it might be.
2: Yeah, and it is crazy to think of like, you really are sort of like a needle in a haystack on these mountains. And even going back to, I think you had said the rescuer's name was Jim Surrett, I believe. And you're just him sort of saying, all right, I'm going to explore a little bit. And he ends up finding James up on the ridge. Like it's these split second decisions that these people make that just, you know, you, and you stumble upon people that are in need of need of help. It's it's crazy to think about it because you really, unless you've been up there on the mountains, like you don't realize the scale of how difficult it is to to actually find somebody.
3: Yeah. And I think the, the correlations. I think really between all these stories is you think about the decision Pam made to follow the frozen footprints, the decision that Jim Surrett made to follow the frozen footprints to what, at what could have been their own peril. Um, you know, Jim was breaking away, highly, highly experienced, but broke away from his team in really bad conditions to do what he thought was right. Pam Easily could have kept walking straight toward West Side Trail and no one ever would have known about it. Um, and then you think of these intersections of decisions the, the decision that Kate Matrasova made at Madison Hut to continue Star Lake or, or to descend Valley Way and tragically took Star Lake. The decision that Pam made at that intersection on Gulf Side to follow the Prince. The decision that Jim, I mean, the decision that Fred and James made at Little Haystack at the Trail Junction. Um, yeah, so, yeah,
2: it is crazy. And I wonder like, so with this film, like the my reaction when I heard that there was a film being made of this is one, are they going to be able to find the balance between, you know, keeping it sort of like a, um, engaging sort of, you know, there's a thriller aspect to it, I'm guessing. And like, can they balance between like, okay, keep the audience engaged with, that kind of idea of like the thriller and the weather and the, you know, the, the challenge of getting somebody down versus like, are they going to stick to the real conditions? And, you know, are they going to accurately accurately represent what the environment is up there without exaggerating it? Um, and then the other thing is, I was like, what are they going to do with this? Are they going to CGI in the Cog Railroad or how is that going to look visually? So I'll be curious to see what happens when they Yeah, I it. think,
3: um, I don't want to talk too much about the details of it where it's not out yet um that that could not bode well for me but uh i I think what's important for the listeners to think about is and it's to what you just said there's gonna there's gonna be a balance between those two that the tension that exists between what happened and 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 the cinematography aspect of it I think for your listeners in particular who are really familiar with the White Mountains, um just when you when you see the the film and the the landscape, just just keep in mind that it might not that might to you it might not be look like Mount Washington. It just, I was again, wondering about that. And I'm not taking away from anything that's in it. I just I'm trying to create I establish really an expectation. Um of what people might see or, 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 how it might be interpreted. And, and again, I, if you're expecting it to, to run exactly as the essay did, um, it's probably, it, there's areas where it, it will not. And again, that's not the criticism or taking away from any of the artistic work that's been done to create that film. It's just, it's the reality of how these things roll, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I have. I'm. I'm curious if Alan Clark is casted as anybody like.
3: I don't, yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> Who would be a good Alan Clark? It's. It's a. It's a small cast. It's. But, yeah, uh, it's, that, a, it's. It's. A, it's. a small cast.
0: And uh, the the funniest thing in here, in your writing, is that uh, Pam was wearing a fleece tank top. Are we going to see Naomi Watts in a fleece tank top? What
2: is a fleece tank top? <laughs> Settle down, Stomp. Jeez. You'll have to wait till the movie comes out, Stomp. I had to go there. Yeah, of course you did. Of course you did. So, so Ty, no, this was all very interesting stuff. And um, we covered a lot of ground here and I'm excited for the movie to come out. And I definitely encourage anybody that hasn't, we'll put all the, all this information in the links on the show notes. But if you haven't read this short story, it really, every once in a while, you read something that sort of takes you out of your world and really just hits you emotionally. And this is one of those, those stories where, so Ty, you sort of said that thing just came right out of you like there wasn't a, was it or it just
3: flowed when you wrote it is that pretty yeah much I it just um I don't know how to explain it um I'm not going to say it was easy to write it wasn't it's just for whatever reason um it just connected with me in a way that I don't know what you what you read is it's pretty pure
2: yeah, yeah, and I can't remember when it went viral, but it definitely like I think it's a it of everything you you know that that you've written like this is the one that sort of is the biggest message of hope and it's an important, you know, it's an important message to keep in mind no matter how how difficult life gets that you um you, know, you can always find your your Pam there to to come and rescue if yeah, you Yeah, that
3: if you, you know there's it. always somebody there who's willing to help you, you know, we all have a list of rescuers, Um, you know, those people that we can lean on and they're there. Can I just say what my favorite line is in
0: this story? And I had to read it like three or four times. Sure. It's uh, after Pam decides to skip the summit, you write quote, for her, summoning was just an option comma, but returning to her SUV was not. I love that. At first, I was like, "What? What does that mean?" It was like one of those upside down yeah. phrases, but it's awesome. It's a oh, great okay. line. Thanks. Good stuff.
2: All right. So, any other questions, Stomp? Oh, uh, we have Ty with us. I well, I think that's.
0: I have a million questions, but we're
3: poor guy uh, must be exhausted. <laughs> no, I really, I <laughs> really appreciate it being able to to talk with you. We've covered a lot of ground that I know I don't normally talk about um that's great yeah the book talks are they tend to be pretty structured and then there's Q&A at the end but uh, you know rarely do we get to cover all of the the pieces that I've I've had the opportunity to write so I I really appreciate being able to talk about them and provide a little bit more context as to how they came to be because each one has a unique reason for for being there
0: yeah we're so thankful that you opted because I thought it would be just fantastic to go through everything. It's just uh, worked out really well.
2: Yeah. I guess, Ty, the only other question I have for you is not related to your books, but it's just sort of the overall theme with search and rescue is I've been, I basically, when I started getting interested in search and rescue, I started capturing, I just have a spreadsheet where I capture every news article on a search and rescue that happens in New Hampshire that's published. And I just sort of track all the characteristics of them and I sort of bucket them down. I haven't really looked at like figuring out like, okay, was this a group related or a solo related hike? But one of the common themes that I see is that there is this bucket of people that get in trouble because... There's two two big buckets I think. There's people that get in trouble because they're novice and they actually don't even know like they're not in this universe to think about even like there's these discussions around safety in the mountains. They're just going out to have fun and it's sort of a novelty for them and they're new and they just don't know what they don't know. The other is the um what I what I generally call sort of the no shame situations where you know people are out there and they break an ankle and there's not much that you can do about that. But I'm wondering, like, is there any, do you have any thoughts around, like, is there any mitigations that can be done at the trailhead or from an education perspective to address those two people? One is, like, how do you get to the people that don't know what they don't know and they're going out there and they get in trouble because they have no headlamp or whatever? Those are the ones that are calling fishing and game. And then the other piece of it is, how do we educate people that, there are options if you do go out there and break an ankle or you know twist your ankle badly you know do you how do we push them to say like bring a splint with you know how to do field medicine more effectively than you you otherwise would is there anything we can do to sort of
3: limit those two types of situations from yeah. your perspective i well first i want to give a shout out to the trail stewards program that's run by the national forest service i think that's and i think fishing game would say that's gone a long way in prevention where you have trail stewards at some of the major trailheads during high frequency times that um, engage in conversations with people around preparation and weather and terrain. And I think that's really important. I, you know, the real, I think the challenge with all of this is that, you know, it's a tourist location and not everyone that comes to the mountains are familiar with the mountains at all. And so how, how, I think the real challenge is how do you get to them? Because the trail stewards can't be there the whole time. We know there are reasons why we, the more experienced, don't intervene as people are moving upward when maybe they should be thinking twice about it. But I also think just things like this podcast um, raise awareness. That's how you get the word out. And I also think there's an 11th essential. Um, we talk about the the 10 essentials. I think there's an 11th and it's self-awareness. I think it's hmm. knowing who you are um, when you present at the trailhead and how does who you are align with your itinerary um, and the weather that's going to be passing over it and through it. And I'll go so far to say maybe 11.5 is Group awareness. Who am I with? What skills and attributes do we bring? What's motivating me to be here? And are my motivators different than yours? Because if they are, that is the potential for a conflict that's going to go unaddressed and uh for potential trouble later on in the day. Uh as that con that silent conflict that's gone unspoken manifests itself when it hits the fan. Um and decisions have to be made.
2: Yeah. And I've, 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 I bring that up quite a lot, Ty, because like we'll have these situations where, you know, there'll be a group of five or six people that got lost navigating. And I always, Stomp, I always say that. I'm like, I wonder what the dynamic is once they realize that they're, you know, they're really in trouble and they need a rescue. Like, you know, are they screaming at each other? Or are they, oh, yes. That's right. you know, are they all sort of like going together <laughs> with teamwork? It's always weird to know, yeah. but. Or well, that long drive home in some cases. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. We've talked about it. sort of like the same thing. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, and me and my wife get into a fight, and we hop in the car together. It's like, always awkward.
0: <laughs> oh boy! I just hope that we're becoming a okay. uh, you know we're not becoming a silly people, and we're becoming a thoughtful people. And oh boy, sometimes I wonder culture's yeah. changing a bit.
2: Well. Well, Ty. I, I, again, I want to thank you for joining us and putting up with Stomp for for this long. I hope that your allergies are not getting uh, getting too difficult to deal
3: with with his crazy cats. I don't think they know. Uh, I don't think they know. I'm alert. I'm really allergic to cats. So let Mike and Stomp know if you've heard me deteriorate over the course of this two plus almost three hour interview and. Um, but that has been great. I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I Good. really appreciate the time to to talk with you and to, with both of you and again congratulations on this. It's 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 more successful than you are going to let on to people. Um, yeah, we're sort of in a bubble about it to be honest with you. Yeah, that's how I am with my stuff. I it, I'm yeah. not on people come up to me hey, did you see someone posted on Facebook about the book or the and I just I I'm completely unaware of it because I'm not on and I don't seek that. Um, yeah. I appreciate the feedback and the good things. I huge thanks to the outdoor community for the support of all of the writing, uh, because it's really been them in, in large part that have driven the, the scale I think of, or the reach I should say of the stories.
0: Yeah. Well, when this comes out, this is, you know, the holiday season, um, any new year's resolutions or future ambitions or just
3: going to go with the flow? I think it's too premature to identify 2022 goals at this point. (laughs) I, there's the, the clouds need to, the weather needs to clear a bit. Yeah, sure. But yeah, I'm just gonna, I'll just continue to, I just really enjoyed engaging with people around these. And, um, I, again, I'm, I'm more grateful than anyone could possibly know. Mm-hmm. for the response and i uh, just i really appreciate people taking the time to read and if you don't i would still encourage you to uh to support search and rescue new hampshire through the outdoor new hampshire outdoor council or through the individual teams themselves it's we're lucky to have them i've mentioned the word pride and something we can be proud of and i mean it it's unique and
2: yeah
0: and absolutely it's special yeah well, last episode we mentioned the um, the fact that you brought in some books, and you're giving away a virtual group chat. So um, let me just run through that quick. And uh,
2: yeah, there'll still be time to donate. But before sure. you do that, stop one thing. I'll give you guys both a free. P- free advice. So I've got my new year's resolution already set up. All right. So this is going to get you guys points with your wise. So my new year's resolution is that, um, you know how when you put clothes in the, ha- I don't do the laundry. Luckily, like I do do, I cook. But we you know when you put the clothes in the hamper and then your wife is like, like, you need to like make sure the clothes are not inside out in the hamper. Yes. That is my new year's resolution is I'm going to make sure that all the clothes that go in the hamper are not inside
3: profound. out. <laughs> See, I talk about, I talk about the value of risk taking. Do you realize the risk yes. that you just you just took yourself in <laughs> well, stating that publicly? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, expo-
2: I'm exposing myself for abuse. Clearly,
3: because there's a good chance there's a good chance you're not going to do it, <laughs> right? I mean
2: well i yeah i'm a disciplined okay. person though so i will do it moving <laughs> right. forward so oh, up until probably i'll make it to march okay. or april ty i think that's my that's my estimate is i'll make it through march or april and then it'll it'll fall off the the,
3: the wheels will fall off but i think it's a, it gives me like two three months worth of yeah. goodwill well and to your point again i i just want to say that um And again, I don't get to say this a lot, but none of these writings really are possible without the support I've gotten from my wife and um, the time that she's helped me to carve out the support and the patience. And um, and I'm really I'm really grateful for that because I just I I couldn't do it. If mm. if the support wasn't there, so just same, a shout out to her. Same here, same yeah. here. I mean,
0: my wife puts up with this dumb podcast and search and rescue, so yeah, she's a saint.
2: Saint yeah. status. Oh, even without the podcast, <sighs> just putting up with you, I mean, it's... good point. Good, good, luck. good point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh boy! All right. Well, let me get through these contests, shall we? Yep. All right. Good. Here it is. So, Ty again has graciously offered to give away six autographed copies of his books um, where you'll find me three of those and then three of the last traverse he's also offered to give one lucky listener a virtual book chat for a group Um, so we have a couple contests that we'll just briefly run through here all the proceeds are going to go to the new hampshire outdoor council that we've mentioned and um, they essentially just support volunteer SAR teams um, when they need gear. Um, you know, they, they support us with food during our meetings and statewide meetings and things like that. They're a fantastic organization um, that all the teams benefit from. So the first contest is an autographed book raffle. So basically, just make a donation, $100 or more to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council on or before New Year's Eve Send an image to us or a screenshot confirming the donation. You can send it to our email, which is slasherpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast at gmail.com. Tell us your name, Instagram, Facebook profile name if you want, and um, that you just want to be part of the raffle. Six winners will be drawn randomly and will receive a single signed book by Ty and a special note that you wrote up, which is very cool. Um, The winners will be announced on the Slasher Facebook and Instagram pages on New Year's Day. Following that announcement, we'll get a hold of you and um, set up uh, how to get that book out to you. The second contest is basically the virtual book chat for your group with Ty. All you have to do is make a single monetary donation to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council again on before New Year's. Send an image again, screenshot to that email, podcast at gmail.com. Tell us your name and um, that you want to be part of the raffle. And um, the highest donation will be the winner for this one. So there will only be one winner. And uh, we'll announce the winner on our Facebook and Instagram page as before. So that's that's pretty cool. Thank you again for that. I think the uh, listeners are going to be pretty psyched about
3: it. Yeah, thanks again for the opportunity to, to support the NHOC yeah. through this medium. I, re, I really do appreciate it. I also want to say how much I appreciate the fact that there are no bars on my cell phone here. <laughs> and it's just been really nice to have three hours of... Splendid isolation. Splendid. I Thank you. You, hey, did, you, you, see, you did, I did my... I, you you did. bet. <laughs> yeah,
2: thank you. It's a miracle his internet service stayed up too for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been a bit hairy lately. It comes and goes. It's wild. But that's the nice part about, you know, once you get past Concord, you know, you get get that little rural feel up in New Hampshire.
3: And uh, just a closing note to the listeners support Mike and Stomp. You guys are doing great work. It's important work and uh, it takes a lot of time and preparation. And Mm. I think whatever folks can do to support this effort too is I wholeheartedly say go for it.
0: Awesome. Appreciate it. And all the other podcasts. I mean, anybody that's sending out the, the information and the data for hikers, uh, how to get out there safe, is cool in our book. I mean, there are some there are some new ones yeah. in like the Adirondacks, the Catskills. Mm. It's great. They're popping up. Um, and Mike, you were the tip of the spear with this idea. So congratulations, my friend.
2: Oh, I get to be the tip of the spear for once. That's great. Uh, <laughs> All
0: right. Happy holidays, everyone.
2: Happy holidays. Thank you, Ty. Awesome. Thank you. Ty's awesome. What do you What do you think? Any anything? Any thoughts as a final wrap up? I think Ty um,
0: was. He was not what I anticipated in terms of uh, how humble he is, and how, um, just honesty is about his efforts. It's like he, he put this information out there really just for education and had no expectations. And, um, you know, just the fact that he doesn't promote himself and this and that, I think that's really fresh, refreshing,
2: um, very cool that was really a great time. Yeah, and it went by like it, it I felt like it went by in about 5 minutes, but it was I think at the end of the day we ended up talking to him for over 3 hours, which is like I can't say thank you enough for for him to take the time to do that. And I think his the the thing that I don't we didn't really touch on too much about Ty and the people need to be aware of is that he has built strong relationships. I think with a lot of the people that are on the ground doing search and rescue, both from the volunteer and the, the government agencies that, that do these activities. So I think he can speak from a, a a place of, authority that not too many people have i mean he's he's gotten access to speak to so many of the main players and i know Stomp. you you know a lot of people as well but i think he's he's really interviewed them and gone deep in these topics so for him to be able to share some of his knowledges and, and do it so graciously is awesome yeah great time and he, you know just the fact that he wants to
0: come back <laughs> that's sort of flattering yeah, especially have to be in with you for three hours <laughs> oh my god yeah this dumb podcast <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> So, uh, excellent, excellent stuff. Yep. Yeah, we will look forward to hopefully um, getting him back on to, to talk about some other topics. Stomp. How? So how? Uh, I a so as we get in. I get my first story here. I got some questions I want to cover with you. And we had Martin Pisani on to talk about sort of like the goal is to sort of continue to be busy into your old age. But you know, when me and you reach our eighties, do you think that we'll be able to keep on hiking together? Together. Hmm. Yeah. You think we'll we'd be able to get together and go hiking? The two of us. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe if we like do like a buddy walk and hold on to each other really tight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about like stuff like hunting? Do you think we could ever go hunting together? Oh, that might be like a Dick Cheney moment. That might be bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's a good segue because I got a good story here. So search. this is not a search and rescue news, but it, it came up over fishing game and I thought that it was kind of funny. Um, It's funny, but not funny. But basically, um, these two older gentlemen in their 80s went hunting together, and it didn't end well. And there was no animals that were hurt in this situation, only humans. (laughs) So November 27th at 5 p.m., the Hampshire Fishing Game officers were notified by the state police of a possible hunting-related shooting in the town of, oh, no, Oh, no. So oh, the, God. The, the town of Lindenborough? <laughs> Lindenborough? Lin- oh, no.
3: That's a
0: tough
2: one. A Lindenborough. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, if anybody can tell me how to pronounce this. Lindenborough, it sounds like. Oh. So the initial call was received by the Milford Area <laughs> Communication Center. Um, and on the scene, conservation officers learned that an 83-year-old gentleman from Lindeborough and an 82-year-old gentleman from Wilton were hunting together before the incident occurred. And the incident appears to have taken place around Sunset while the two gentlemen were returning to their vehicle. The um, 83-year-old was unloading his Remington Model 722 bolt-action hunting rifle and failed to remove all the rounds from the gun before placing it into the vehicle. Do you know where I'm going with this, stomp? Um, yeah. <laughs> As the rifle was being placed into the vehicle, a round remained in the chamber and was fired. The bullet traveled across the passenger side of the vehicle through the leg of the 82-year-old who was sitting in the driver's seat and continued to the driver's side door. That's not very nice. Uh, injury was serious but not life-threatening, so maybe you get a little bit of a graze.
0: Yeah, the older individual took out the younger individual,
2: so that would be me taking you out. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously like we don't want to joke about this stuff. It's it's horrible that this happened, but huh. you know, apparently not, everybody survived. So just well, be careful out there hunting. I, I'm very ignorant about the
0: regulations around hunting and uh, you know the seasons. But one question I have is like, is there some kind of screening process for ability or you know like motor vehicles? you know sometimes doctors say hey listen you probably shouldn't drive anymore
2: is there anything like that for older individuals that i have no idea i don't know but i, I think it is interesting like and i think about this alec baldwin shooting situation too and i'm like you know oh. to me i would think that in these situations like the number one focus that you would want to um you know make sure that you've co- or the one number one area you want to make sure that you cover is like let's make sure that there's no rounds in the guns but apparently that doesn't happen as much as we think yeah clearly so, so anyway but you know, those two older gentlemen have a fun story to talk about and um, <laughs> you know Dick Cheney I guess continues to be the sort of prototype of anytime these incidents happen his name comes up so right, cliche yes exactly or a meme, yeah, a meme. All right, so next one is on uh, November twenty fourth. This is located on uh, Jackson, a Webster Jackson Trail in Crawford Notch. Uh, around ten thirty a.m., nine one one call received from an injured hiker from Vermont. Um. This hiker was hiking with a companion and her dog, and they had intended on summoning Mount Jackson. Shortly after crossing a brook, uh, the hiker slipped and fell, injuring her ankle. She was unable to walk, had to call 911. Uh, Conservation officers along along with Fish and U.S. Forest Service and Lakes Region Search and Rescue responded to the call for assistance. First rescue was got there around twelve. So that's not bad, ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. And the the hiker was assessed, stabilized, and placed in a sleeping bag in a rescue litter. She was carried down the trail to an awaiting ambulance, arriving at two thirty or so. So I'm I'm trying to think about. I think there's like that that little waterfall where the split the trail split between going up to Webster or going up to Jackson happens. And I think that there's like a, a like a a water crossing there. So my guess is that's probably where she was, and that's not too far in. So she ended up... Not too bad. Yeah, calling 10.30. She's out by 2.30, so four hours. Took them an hour and a half to get to her. Yeah, I'm not sure what the weather was. They said conditions were challenging due to high winds, snow flurries, and the presence of snow and ice on the trail. So check the weather. Okay, the season. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't say... All it says here is basically that you know, check the weather conditions, and it just recommends additional warm clothing, hats, mittens, boots, and microspikes or traction. It doesn't say anything whether she had traction or not. And this time of the year is tricky because, like even hiking the other day, it's tricky because you you, you want to stay safe, but also like it's tough to put on your microspikes in some areas because like they absolutely take a beating on, that, on the, the, the bare rock. Right. And it's like, you got to take them on, put them back on, put them back, take them off, put them on. You know, it's it, once I have them on, I'm just leaving them on.
0: Right. And then you get the balling up. My, my hike that I mentioned last episode on Bald Peak and Crosby, I beer booted the entire way up and then I had to shift over to the spikes. And then on the way out, it was back to boots. So right now, as we speak at the studio here, it's pouring out. Mm-hmm. Everything's getting wiped out which is sort of a shame, but this is typical for this time of the year. Yeah. hate to say it, but December's like, it's a crapshoot.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was right. It's tough because yeah, I prefer to bare boot as long as I can, so I'm not hacking up my spikes. But yeah. at a certain point, once you're like climbing or you're on steep steep areas, then you've got to put them on. But they just take a beating this time of the year. So I don't know. Maybe they were
0: bare booting as long as they could. A little side story, quick about spikes. I went when I was down getting this beer. Um, I went into one of the local stores, and they have the Hill Sound Pro crampon pros. Seventy yep. bucks. Seventy bucks. Is that
2: new? Has it gone up? I think so. The the Catula Micro spikes have always been around sixty. Oh man. So I'm I'm guessing Hill sounds are a little more. I think the Hill sounds are a little bit more aggressive. Absolutely. It'll, than the micro spike. So maybe they're like, okay, we can position ourselves as a little bit more expensive, but you sort of get a little bit more of an aggressive spike for it. And I think that's probably why. So I don't think they've gone up that much actually.
0: But it reminds me of, um, you know, talking to Jimmy Chag. I reached out to him today. I'm like, Hey, what's the place where you got those knockoffs? And they're like 25, 30 bucks. And I swear to God, it's, it's like getting a no name brand, but it's the same exact thing. So, I'm thinking about buying a pair just to test them out to see if they're as sturdy.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing I always get scared about with those knockoff brands is like I wonder how um how long the um the gasket piece, the like the rubber piece is gonna like are they sacrificing the quality of that and then that becomes brittle after like one or two seasons? or are yeah. they also sacrificing the strength of the links on the bottom? Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe if if you, it's really your choice. Like, do you pay seventy bucks to get something where you you pretty much know it's going to last three or four seasons of regular use, or do you risk paying twenty five for a knockoff model and maybe you get one season out of it? I don't know.
0: True. I mean, there are a lot of reviews, so I think uh, from what I read, they were pretty positive. But then again, I think they were people that weren't perhaps doing the forty eight or you know more aggressive hikes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and honestly, like once we get into the first couple of big snowstorms, it will be a non-issue. But like right now, when you when you're going between ice, snow, and and, and bare ground, it just they got to be sturdy. Oh, no question. The next one is so this was on December second. Um, so five fifteen, fishing game was notified of a hiker in distress on or about the Smith Connector Trail in Monadnock State Park. I don't know where that is. I've never hiked on that. So this was mm-hmm. a 24-year-old hiker from Massachusetts. Um, he had called 911 because he was unable to navigate his way to the trailhead. He didn't have any rain gear, dry clothes, any navigation tools or lights, and his cell phone was at like 10% battery life. So heavy rain, near freezing temperatures. This guy was like, I'm screwed, called 911. Manadnock Park staff member and conservation officers responded to the old toll road trailhead and began hiking to attempt to locate this guy. Um, it was slippery snow-covered trails and rain. Rescuers made contact with him around 8 o'clock, and he was given warm fluids, micro spikes to make it possible to hike to an awaiting rescue vehicle, and he got... He got down around nine o'clock. So this is, sounds like a young person that just didn't know what they didn't know, and they got stuck in bad weather and had to get bailed out. Mm-hmm. Take note of what they did with this
0: person, uh, and reflect back on what Ty wrote about with Pam Bales and how she approached John. I think those those critical, simple things you can do to somebody that's on the trail right off the bat that's suffering from hypothermia, whatever degree. You know, warming the uh, the pulse points and warm liquids, uh, getting them off the ground, really informative and important things to know when you're going out there this winter.
2: Yeah, and it's funny you say that because I was on I was on an you know, a couple days ago, and. We got me and Tom got up top, and we had all our gear, and it was nice and warm and everything. And there was two two young people up there. One of them was seemed pretty well dressed. The other one was in gray sweatpants and a gray sweatshirt, you know. And and it's it was cold and windy up there. Yeah. And one of the kids, I took out my thermos because I had some hot chocolate. And one of the kids asked me, he was like, "Oh, you brought a thermos? That's a good idea. I got to remember to do that." And I said, "Yeah." You know, I look at it as it's a nice to have and it's also a safety device just in case anybody gets hypothermic or anything like that. You hit them with this warm liquid and it'll help. Mm-hmm. And I was like looking right at the kid in the gray sweatshirt who was shaking like a leaf. Oh. And I was like, I was almost like, oh, you want some? But he, they they were heading down. So Good, good. Hopefully he survived. Yeah, it's been pretty lousy weather last few days. Let me see if I got one more here. Oh, yeah, there was a runner. This is in Northwoods Meadow State Park. There was a runner that um, became over overcame overcome by darkness. So they were um, I guess just, just got lost, didn't have a light. Ultra and light. And they needed to be they didn't it didn't sound like they had a headlamp here, so they had to it's too, be it's too um, heavy. I guess. I mean it's not it's not that heavy. I don't get it. But basically around five PM again. They got a 911 call of a lost hiker in Northwoods Meadow State Park, and upon receiving the notification fishing game and the Northwoods Police De- uh, Police Department responded to the park to assist this person out of the woods, 50-year-old um, gentleman from Orlando, Florida was found. Um, apparently, he was separated from the trail while on a run, had to call 911 when it got dark. And he didn't have a flashlight or anything like that. So he was able to communicate via cell phone and he was guided to a nearby trail. Uh, eventually they found him and he was transported back to his vehicle to the main entrance around 645. So it took about two hours to get get him out of there. Interesting. So where where is Northwood Meadows? I feel like that may be in like Southern New Hampshire, maybe off of like 101, but let me double check. And the person was from Florida.
0: I wonder if they knew the area or if they were just a vacationer that was like, hey, I got to go for a run and just didn't understand the terrain or.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, you know where it is? It's up by, uh, it's at that intersection of um, Route 4 and Route 202. So it's okay. actually like in between, it's a little bit like uh, northeast of Beerbrook State Park in that area there. It's off of 202. Gotcha. But I think that's it. Now, Stomp, I'm going to go out and I'm, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed here, but I'm hoping that this is it for search and rescue for the uh, the rest of the year. Um, I am going to, um, over the Christmas break, I am going to tally up all of the search and rescue events that we've covered for the year. I think I did yeah. up to like the end of May. Uh, but I'm going to put them on a spreadsheet. I'll put together a report. I'll share that on the Facebook page. And then maybe one of the episodes, we can kind of go over the numbers and compare the numbers for 2021 to 2020 and 2019. And it'll only be the media reported events. So I don't have access to you know events where they're not covered in the newspaper. But right. still be interesting. Sure. Um, all right. So the last one here is the first human-triggered avalanche in Tuckerman Ravine on December 5th. So around noontime, a skier triggered a shallow, soft-slab avalanche near the top of the left gully. skier was caught and carried, and a sh- short distance later triggered a second, larger avalanche. So it sounds like he triggered a small one, and that triggered a larger one. Yeah. So the skier was carried 800 vertical feet, unharmed, and landed on top of the snow at the mouth of the gully. 800 at feet. The same That's amazing. 800 feet, it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's like the the height
0: of Cannon Cliff, perhaps. Um, When you look at the map of the gully, that's amazing. And the the five days prior, they had three inches of snow. So it's really amazing that this happened, and it shows you how uh, careful you have to be.
2: Yeah, and it also shows you that when you're – when you're on these steep inclines here like you're even though you can be doing everything right like you're sort of at the mercy of all the other people that are around you so it's not it's not good enough really for you to know what you're doing and 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 behave safe in avalanche territory everybody around you needs to do that too because at the same time that this person was triggering um, an avalanche It was a solo skier that was halfway up the, the gully transitioning from climbing to skiing when he was hit by the avalanche. Mm-hmm. So that skier ended up getting carried like 450 feet and hitting rocks along the way, and serious injuries were the result. So, um, so I guess they had to uh, take care of that person, and they had to put him in a litter, or that person in a litter, and transport them to an ambulance waiting at the trailhead. Yeah, so the there were two skiers involved from above, and I guess the rescue effort involved nine people in five hours, so... Yeah, if you're going out into the backcountry to do
0: this stuff, Mount Washington Avalanche Center, they... Out a daily avalanche forecast, and um, it's really good to look at before you're going out there, just to get a sense of what you're facing and how to plan your day and or cancel your day.
2: Yeah, I, and I was actually surprised that there's people skiing this early. Like, I, I mean, hats off to these people that are like into ski. Like, that's a, so much work for just so little like payoff. Yeah. I think like yeah. it's. Hardcore, Exactly. Like they, they're climbing up there and like, it's like, what is it like a two minute ski session to get down from there?
0: Probably less than that. You're talking eight, 900 feet. That's, that's over in, in probably less than a minute. Yeah. Incredible. It's a good
2: workout. <laughs> it is a good workout. Hike up, ski
0: down, hike up,
2: ski down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good workout. But um, one other thing just to, that ties to this avalanche thing is uh, there is a fundraiser, another fundraiser going on for, I don't really, I don't think I understand this, stop. so you may have to like explain this to me, but I guess we want to bring the Northeast first avalanche beacon park to Pinkham Notch. I guess what this is, is um, they want to create this avalanche beacon training and practice park, um, like the one the friends of Tuckerman Ravine are building at Pinkham Notch. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know exactly what it is, but it sounds to me like they're basically looking for people to donate. And this thing will be built behind Joe Dodge Lodge in Pinkham Notch. So it'll be easy walking distance from the parking lot. And I'm assuming they can sort of train on, on beacon technology and beacon best practices. Well, in a
0: sense, what you're doing is you're, you're practicing or simulating an event where, you, you know, you and I go skiing after we we narrowly escape shooting each other with our rifles, mm-hmm. and one of us gets tagged in a in an avalanche. So the person that's still standing gets to practice what it's like to go find the beacon that your buddy has that's buried. So they are placing buried beacons, Got and it. you're going to go over there and practice best techniques, like you mentioned to get somebody out safely and to find them. So I think this is a great step forward. And I I hand it to uh, the folks that are starting this.
2: Okay, that's interesting. And I I just don't know enough about this stuff, but um, it sounds like, and I'll put a link to the show notes here. And it looks like they're about, they're looking to raise $5,000 and they've got like about 2100 that they've raised so far across 53 donations. So they're looking for like $25 donation. And then if you donate, it'll enter you to win a slew of prizes from Easton Mountain Sports and other local businesses. So EMS is going to choose 10 winners uh, who can take home like $100 EMS gift cards, an EMS school course, um, jackets, backpacks, snowshoes. Trekking poles, so there's a bunch of stuff you can win here, which is pretty cool. So I'm am guessing stomp I'm assuming if they open this park up, like different guide services would be able to use it as well to sort of train their their um their clients on how to how to do beacon stuff. I guess.
0: Yeah, that's the one. The one question I had is uh, how they would staff it and manage it and uh, keep it keep it rolling. Yeah,
2: yeah. So it's pretty cool stuff, and you know we probably got to get Jeff. Roger's back on here to talk about backcountry skiing at some point. That would be excellent.
0: Ty has graciously offered to give away six autographed copies of his books, three Will You'll Find Me, and three of The Last Traverse. He's also offered to give one lucky listener a virtual book chat for a group as well. So we thought up a couple simple contests for the listeners um, with all the proceeds to benefit the New Hampshire Outdoor Council, the primary nonprofit organization in New Hampshire that supports the volunteer SAR groups. You can participate in one or both of these contests, and here's how they're going to work. For the autographed book raffle, just make a donation of $100 or more to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council on or before New Year's Eve. Send us an image or screenshot confirming your donation to slasherpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast at gmail.com. You know, include your name. Uh, if you want, you can tell us your Instagram or Facebook profile or handle, as they say. Uh, and most importantly, that you want to join the book raffle. Uh, six winning entries will be drawn randomly and will receive a single signed book by Ty. The winners will be announced on the Slash for Facebook and Instagram pages on New Year's Day. Following that announcement, the winners will be contacted in order to provide a suitable mailing address so we can get your prize out to you. Now for the virtual book chat for your group with Ty, just make a single monetary donation to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council on or before New Year's Eve. Again, send an image or a screenshot to the same email address, slash or podcast at gmail.com. Give us your name, Instagram, profile, or Facebook. And most importantly, tell us that you want to join the raffle. So there's only one winner for this virtual book chat for your group, okay? Uh, And that winner will be announced again on the Slasher Facebook and Instagram pages on New Year's Day. And uh, after that, we'll contact you and give you more information.
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And well, there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Uh-huh.
3: Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire?
1: Seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.